Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com slash AMA. Learning is crucial. Its contribution now to overall GDP uh, and productivity growth is dominant, more than technology. The world has changed, so education and training are cool now, much more so than they used to be, and necessary, and people know that. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 261 of the Leading Learning Podcast, the midway point in our seven-part series on the third sector of education, the sector that serves the millions of adults who continue to learn and grow in the decades that follow their secondary and post-secondary education. Jeff and I set up the series in episode 258, defining the sector and digging into the reasons for its recent growth. Then we ran two interviews— I spoke with Michelle Weiss, author of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, in episode 259. And I spoke with Cassandra Blassingame, CEO of the International Accreditors for Continuing Education and Training, in episode 260. Coming up later in the series still are episodes with Nigel Payne, the author of Workplace Learning, How to Build a Culture of Continuous Employee Development, who's deeply immersed in the issues of corporate L&D, and Latrice Garrison, Executive Vice President of the Education Division at the American Chemical Society. Before we get to those conversations with Nigel and Latrice, though, we want to devote this episode to reflecting on what we've learned so far from Michelle and Cassandra, and we want to pull in some additional voices. The third sector of education is a term you coined, Jeff, and we've both been using it for several years now. As a reminder, the first sector is the pre-K through high school system that serves children. The second sector covers higher education that grants degrees, and both those sectors are well known. The third sector of education is less familiar, but definitely not new. That third sector serves the millions of adults who continue to learn and grow in the decades that follow their secondary and post-secondary education. And there are many providers that make up the third sector, corporate learning and development, learn tech companies, even social networking companies like Facebook and LinkedIn, community education, and of course, learning businesses, which is where we at Leading Learning focus. And so the third sector is clearly big, serving millions of adults. But how big? Well, I got the chance to speak with Dr. Anthony Carnavali, director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. And it's Tony's voice that you heard at the top of the show. The Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce is an independent, nonprofit research and policy institute that studies the link between education, 
career qualifications, and workforce demands. Since 2008, the center has conducted research related to jobs, skills, and equity to better inform students, parents, teachers, and policymakers about the changing relationship between education and careers. The center makes many free resources available via its website, and so I really encourage you to check out the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 261, because that will include a link to the center's website, and then I encourage you to spend some time on the center's website. Definitely do that. And, and an economist view is really wonderful to have is it can help with answering that somewhat tricky question of quantifying the size of the third sector of education. So, Salisa, what data does the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce have about the size of the sector? Well, the center published a report called College is Just the Beginning back in 2015. And that report stated that each year the U.S. spends $1.1 trillion on post-secondary education and training. And that $1.1 trillion includes formal and informal education and training. Wow. $1.1 trillion a year. That's trillion with a T, folks. And do you know how that breaks down? Well, the college is just the beginning report does break that $1.1 trillion down. $649 $649 billion is for formal post-secondary education and training each year, and then $47 billion of that is spent on certifications, apprenticeships, and other workforce training. And then a much smaller slice, $18 billion, uh, goes to federally funded job training programs. Uh, employers are the largest element of the post-secondary education and training apparatus. They spend billion a year on informal, on-the-job training. And when I spoke with him, I asked Tony what he knows or can say about what's happened to spending on post-secondary education and training since 2015 when that College is Just the Beginning report came out. It has grown. Um, The spending, for instance, in corporations, the direct correlation uh, with corporate spending, the most powerful factor is the educational attainment of their workforce. So to the extent that more and more of our workforce is has post-secondary education uh, or training, uh, that increases corporate training because you have more trainable people and because the reason the job requirements now include post-secondary education and training is because technology has automated and continues to automate all of the repetitive tasks in any job uh, and more and more, especially in a service economy, which is what we are, more and more of the tasks left to human beings are um, non-repetitive. Well, it takes more skill to handle non-repetitive tasks. And the other piece is more and more, there's been a dramatic shift in the extent to which people work in contact with other people. Uh, So there's a whole set of soft skills that are now, or that's what they're called, that are now required in the workforce that only used to be required for the bosses. And Tony, good economist that he is, did offer some other dollar figures as well. 
we think the formal training in the workplace is about 130 billion now. You can get an argument on that, but the numbers are always well over 100 billion. And then there's the informal training, which is uh, the things you learn uh, on the job by from your peers, from your workaday life. Uh, and the estimates of that that are generally made by economists like us uh, are that that's always roughly three to four times the amount of formal training. So anywhere from 300 to 400 billion. Uh, it's not something that gets sold by anybody. It's something that is done informally on the job. It's really important because it is in the end what employers prefer. That is, you hire people with skills, more education these days than heretofore, uh, precisely because you think they're trainable. And when you say trainable, what you mean is you want people who are capable of learning on the job. Since the mid-80s, that has become more and more important in terms of individual workers' ability to deliver on quality, variety, customization, convenience, uh, innovation, and so on. The economy is now driven by learning organizations. When you're dealing with something as big as the third sector, it seems inevitable that it'll be difficult to keep tabs on on it all. Yeah, and that's something that came up in my conversation with Michelle. She called out the duplication of efforts. Not only is duplication a poor use of limited resources, time, money, mental energy, but Michelle made the point that these siloed approaches also inhibit innovation. If organizations don't understand where they dovetail with or overlap with others, then they aren't seeing the issues fully and clearly. And that means they're hampered in trying to design the most elegant and efficient solutions. Silos came up in my conversation with Liam O'Malley, too. Liam is vice president of association solutions at Blue Sky eLearn. And this is what he had to say when I asked him about what he sees as opportunities for those in the third sector. The great opportunity that I've seen is organizations just working more closely together, breaking down internal silos, talking to each other about their goals, figuring out how, I mean, even just figuring out how do I make my budget work with your budget? How do we achieve the same thing? And again, uh, you know, association context here, but I think mirrors elsewhere of we've got people that put on meetings, we've got people that create courses, and often they don't talk to each other very much. Um, where really a, a lot of the function that they're providing is very close or even overlapping and when they're brought together can become really powerful in putting together a, a, a more holistic strategy. And, um, you know, that, again, associations could be meetings and, and learning, but it could also be uh, corporate training or industry-related stuff, any kind of organization, I think. So Liam's talking about not just silos between organizations, but within an organization. And those internal silos do seem as likely to inhibit innovation as the external silos that Michelle mentioned. True. And when I spoke with Amanda Davis, and Amanda is vice president of Continuing Education Solutions at Blue Sky eLearn, 
she predicted more mergers in the learned tech space. I cited some investment and merger activity in the first episode in this series, as I think that's evidence of the growing importance of the third sector. Mergers are a potential solution to those duplication of efforts. And another potential way around duplication of effort that Amanda mentioned is avoiding the temptation to be everything to everyone, which can be especially hard for associations who sometimes feel that they have to serve the needs of all of their members. But Amanda suggested focusing. That whole idea of being everything to everyone. I believe that that will be the, the sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back for a lot of these organizations that you need to really step back. And I think this is part of that strategizing, whether it's membership, whether it's a learning business, whatever, whatever you're talking about within your organization, you step back and challenge what you've been doing for so long and that. Find your data, certainly, as much as you possibly can. Dig through your data on this, but don't don't work towards those little small pockets of your membership. Find those unique value propositions and move towards those and, and really establish that value in your market. I, I, I just, I believe that that is... Um, that's not done enough. You know, the whole, we'll just add it to another thing, another process that we do. We'll just add this and add this and add this. And then you're not good at anything. I really think that that's going to trouble a lot of organizations over the five, 10, next 15 years. Out of existence, in fact. Amanda mentioned finding those unique value propositions. And and that really is key. If your value proposition is, in fact, unique, then by definition, you're not duplicating effort, and it means your learning business has a good awareness of the third sector. You're aware of the other options and players, and you're offering something else, something different, something unique. And in addition to adding perspectives on the third sector to this series, we're grateful to Blue Sky eLearn for their financial sponsorship of the podcast. For nearly 20 years, Blue Sky eLearn has been transforming the way organizations deliver virtual events and educational content. Blue Sky's customized, cutting-edge solutions connect hundreds of organizations to millions of learners worldwide. These include their award-winning learning management system, PathLMS, webinar and live streaming services for short events to multi-day virtual conferences, and learning strategy and development solutions. These robust, easy-to-manage solutions allow organizations to easily organize, track, and monetize educational content. You can find out more at blueskyelearn.com. In the first in this series, episode 258, Salisa, you and I highlight five developments we see contributing to the growth of the third sector of education. We talk about them all in more detail in that episode, but in brief, the five developments are one, shifts in human life and work, two, technology advances, three, the surge in content, four, strides in neuroscience, and five, the pandemic. I'm curious, did growth of the sector come up in your conversation with Tony from the Georgetown Center for Education and the Workforce? 
Indeed, it did. And here's what he had to say. What used to happen in my day when I graduated from high school um, was that you achieved what people called in those days independent adulthood, economic independence, and you're ready for family formation. Nowadays, family formation has less and less to do with economic independence. Uh, and um, the age at which most people achieve the economic standard for economic independence, which is to achieve the average wage for their gender, is now age 32. So he's adding some nuance to what we put under the heading of shifts in human life and work. Right. He's talking about the huge population of people between the ages of 18 and 32 who need education and training. That's at the front end of work life and careers, but there are also older workers, those who have been at a job or in a field for some time. And then, of course, there's a whole other market for people who need to upgrade their skills, although uh, that is concentrated in certain industries. Healthcare is the most obvious one. Computers is another one. Uh, various and sundry business certificates and certifications provided by employers, uh, your Microsoft network certification, for example, uh, those are more and more important. But there's about to be uh, one of the reasons we have a rebellion by working class Americans is because all that economic change left them behind. We never provided an education or training solution. Uh, to keep their jobs or get them new ones, that is now a priority. The issue is going to be who can produce programs that that clearly produce results. That's going to be the change. What Tony says about producing results is just so important. We've long talked about the need for learning businesses to show results, to prove that they're moving the needle, and he's saying that need is only going to grow as demand for the third sector grows. Yes, the importance of outcomes, of tying training and education to positive outcomes is something Tony stressed. And the education and training the third sector provides are now seen as essential. It used to be that a high school degree could lead to a good job, but that's rarely the case now. Well, there is no doubt that really since the mid-80s, Uh, The importance of new competitive requirements for institutions, again, quality, variety, customization, convenience, novelty, speed of operations, the old American economy of mass production of standardized goods and um, very fragmented production of non-standardized services like education or health care, those are gone. Uh, or at least in the case of education and healthcare, people are now demanding more outcome standards because what we always have had in those arenas is of uh, no ability to achieve a consistent quality. Whereas in the um, more measurable world of manufacturing and private sector uh, companies, we have moved substantially uh, towards uh, very much an outcomes-based complex, uh, network-driven production and service delivery system where learning is crucial. Uh, And its contribution now to 
overall GDP uh, and productivity growth is dominant, more than technology. So the world has changed. So education and training are cool now, much more so than they used to be and necessary. And people know that. Um, a lot of people aren't happy about that uh, because to some extent it's led to a tremendous increase in credentialing in America. Uh, only 20% of good jobs now go to people with high school degrees. Uh, the rest all come with some sort of credential certification or uh, formal or um, informal training or non-credit education, which is very big in education now and really is training. With greater attention comes greater scrutiny, with more people recognizing the importance and necessity of the education and training, there's greater demand for those outcomes, for those results. And Tony emphasized at multiple points in my conversation with him the need for accountability and transparency so that learners and funders and society at large can know about the results of any particular education and training offering. So we're headed for a world where uh, there's go- there really is going to be a lot more accountability because the cost of all this, the necessary investment in education and training, uh, both for efficiency in our economy, for individual careers, and to uh, and to combat race and class inequality. There's a huge gap now by race and by class in access to training and education that produces a job that produces a living wage. And that has become, uh, again, noticeably over the past few years, that has become a primary uh, concern. We live in a a world now where the race and class inequality has become a real problem. And, um, it's hard to figure out how we get out of that. That is, white people in America move from city to suburb to the good schools in the suburbs. And in the mid-80s, when suddenly everybody really needed some post-secondary education and training, there was a huge white flight to the bachelor's degree in America. Um, minorities, low-income Americans were left behind. So the gap now is huge. Uh, essentially, white upper uh, middle class and upper middle class Americans have a 30 year advantage now over blacks, Latinos and so on. So there is a um, this is a tough one. The amount of education required to fix that uh, is huge. I mean, it's so it's it's clear that the if you're in this business, uh It's a growth business. There's no doubt about it. That focus on inequality is a big one for the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. They focus their research and resources on three big areas, jobs, skills, and equity. And DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's an area of interest and focus for Michelle. That's right. It is. One of the through lines of Michelle's work is attention to those left behind and left out of traditional education and training opportunities. 
And if you look at the works cited in her book, Long Life Learning, you'll find several items published by the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce and written by Dr. Carnavali. So again, I do encourage listeners to check out the center's website. They make a lot of great data and research available for free. But yes, inequality is a huge issue for the third sector. When I asked Tony about the threats that he sees for the third sector of education and what the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce is doing to help address those threats, he focused on credentialism and the inherent inequality of that, at least at this moment. We've been forced to move towards a society driven much more by credentialing uh, than it was before. Now, there are problems with that. Uh, when you have a society driven by credentialing, especially post-secondary credentialing, um, you get credentialism. It makes it much harder for people who don't have credentials to get a good job, to be plain about it. Our solution to that, as you can see in all the political conversation, is we're going to get everybody a credential, uh, whether it be education or training. And we're going to build what is effectively an education and training system There are a lot of issues about who gets the training mission. So far, it's education. If you had to look at the big players, um, it'll be much more wide open than that, I think, as we move along. Uh, So what we're doing is, and one of the reasons we exist, is that a lot of people felt that we needed to catch up with this credentialing figure out what it means, figure out if it's real, and it is. Um, And then the question is, how are we going to um, make that happen? Well, one way is free college, um, to give you a proposal that's prominent at the moment. So uh, we have decided to credential the heck out of America um, and to create all kinds of new credentials and to invest much more Uh, The other piece of the response, I would say, if you look across institutions, is transparency and accountability. That is, uh, we've built a system and we've been a a champion of that uh, for a long time, Uh, building a system in which you can measure outcomes. Both of those pieces are pretty well in place. What we don't know is where all the money is going to come from. But the, uh, that is the way as a society we're resolving this. That is, uh, nobody can see any other way to do this is to expand the share of Americans with uh, skill credentials or whatever you might want to call them. And to find a way to make sure when we do that, because it means as a society, both in our families, in our government, in um, uh, in all parts of our society, we're going to need to be able to measure the value of this additional education and training. So those are the two responses that we've been pretty intimately involved with, along with um, the concern that comes with that. The minute you start doing this work is this is not happening evenly across America. So we know that there's been a huge increase in inequality in America, economic inequality, since 1983, but 70% of that increase is due to differences in education and training. So it has become a core economic and social problem. 
The talk of credentialism brings to mind for me the noise in the marketplace that came up in your conversation with Michelle Salisa. She made the point that there are some 730,000 credentials available. 730,000 is a lot. It, it is a lot. And I think what you and Cassandra talked about is a potential way to stand out in a crowded marketplace. That is, accreditation of a learning business or a learning businesses program can help separate that credential from the 729,999 others. And that's, of course, what Cassandra's organization, the International Accreditors for Continuing Education and Training, does. That's right. While there can be issues with proxies in in such a crowded marketplace, with so many options for training and education, it seems that accreditation can be a meaningful proxy for results and outcomes. And that is, offerings built to adhere to good standards and independently verified to conform to those standards may rise to the top and be seen as trustworthy and, and therefore get funding, whether from the public or from employers or from individual lifelong learners willing to spend their hard-earned dollars. And to circle back to the inequality point, I want to say that inequality has bubbled up for me as an unexpected answer to the how might a deepened awareness of the third sector help your learning business question. That's a question we posed in the first episode of this series. Or it's not exactly that inequality might help a learning business, but I think a deepened awareness of the inequality in the third sector now might give a learning business a new mission or focus in their offerings, looking at who's being left out, turning those non-consumers into learners, to borrow Michelle's term, non-consumers. Which is, of course, her borrowing a Clayton Christensen term. As a reminder, the other question we posed in the first episode of the series was, what's your learning business's awareness of the third sector of education? Our hope is that you've been considering that question as well as how a deepened awareness might impact your learning business as you've been listening, and that you'll continue to consider those questions as you listen to what's still to come in this series. You'll find show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 261, along with a transcript and a variety of resources, including a link to the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. And we encourage you to check out the research the center makes available. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 261, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. Personal recommendations are really critical in today's noisy world. So please also take a minute to rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcast. Salise and I personally appreciate it. And those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. And we encourage you to learn more about the series sponsor at blueskyelearn.com. Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 261, you'll find links to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.